Welcome to the podcast series from the National Centre for Research Methods at the University of Southampton. In today's podcast, Dr Jen Tarr from the London School of Economics talks about research looking at communicating chronic pain. It comes partly from my interest in pain, which evolved out of a project on dancers and their experiences of pain and injury and how they distinguish between the two. And a kind of standing interest that my colleagues and I have on um, new methodologies and new ways of doing things. And this sort of coincided with a call from the NCRM around uh, methodological innovations projects. And we sat down with my qualitative colleagues at the Department of Methodology and began to think about how we might frame something in response to this call around the arts and humanities and bringing them into the social sciences and particularly how they might help to express things that are difficult to articulate. So why specifically communicating chronic pain? Chronic pain is a classic thing that is is difficult to explain. There aren't any objective measurements of it. So it's, it's very resistant to language. And my colleagues had interests in kind of various elements that we ended up bringing into the project. Some of my colleagues... Elena Gonzalez-Poledo is interested in digital methods, um, which has built up this sort of um, element about looking at chronic pain on social media. My colleague Flora Cornish is really interested in evaluation methodologies and how do we tell whether qualitative research has particular outcomes, is it any good or not, these kinds of things. And then my colleague Ode Bicolet, who's a text analyst and is interested in, in thinking about analytic strategies for this sort of less textual kind of data. So it's quite a a wide-ranging project, in fact, but I wonder whether we can talk about some of the specifics of what you wanted to examine and, and why. So we know, as I said, that chronic pain is very difficult to measure. Uh, There is no objective way to say that somebody has pain or has a particular amount of pain. Even functional MRI scanning, fMRI, is not particularly reliable, and there are lots of different ways of of, um, interpreting those kinds of findings. So we can say pain does certain things to the brain, but um, it's not as simple as here's the pain and this is how much pain this person has and that kind of thing, um, even at that sort of neuroscientific level. There are other ways that are commonly used in clinical um, encounters of measuring pain, so things like visual analog scales, numerical rating scales, how, how much pain do you have on a scale of 1 to 10 kind of thing, and a tool called the McGill Pain Questionnaire, which uses a lot of linguistic descriptors. But even these aren't necessarily words that people use for themselves. And we wanted to examine what outside of language we might be able to say about pain and, and what kinds of tools we could, we could bring in that might really help with the kind of clinical encounter because all of what happens around pain is really within that, in terms of diagnosing it, is, is within that uh, clinical encounter between a clinician and a patient, somebody who has pain. And most of, it, most of the emphasis, the onus, ends up being on how well they can get that across. So if there are other ways of getting that across, then that might increase the the sort of ability of both clinicians and patients to communicate. So why is it important, would you say, for us to understand more the social context of of pain and how it affects people? Because there is no objective measure of pain, all of what happens is really in terms of diagnosis. And chronic pain is widely understood to be, as some of the literature says, a complex biopsychosocial phenomenon. So it's got biological elements, it's got psychological elements, but it also has social elements. And all of the the context of treatment and diagnosis is is social, has social elements. There was a study by Lorna Rhodes and others on back pain that says that um, 
people often were relying on the visual, the, the MRI scan, both clinicians and patients relying on the MRI scan to say whether the pain is real or not. The pain is real whether or not the MRI scan shows up something wrong with the back, but clinicians sometimes have this sort of dualistic way of looking at it that the pain is, is really related to physiological malfunction or not. Patients certainly hear this and, and interpret whether or not the physician thinks it's as simple as, as you have it or you don't. Certainly that, there's that feeling for many people with pain that they're being told their pain is all in their head or it's not real. Um, you have to go to a chronic pain management clinic, a management program. It's not, it's not related to the biology. So a lot of that social context is really important in identifying what's going on with pain. So you're saying that there's there's nothing black and white about pain. It's an incredibly complex thing. Pain is is a difficult phenomenon to to study because um, sometimes it isn't related to trauma and sometimes it exists in the absence of trauma. Chronic pain is about pain that persists in most cases after there's an identifiable physiological cause. So it's it's something kind of going wrong in the circuitry and the wiring. The classic example is something like phantom limb pain where the limb no longer exists but is still sending sensations to the missing region. So you know bearing those complexities and those challenges in mind, how did you go about Uh, looking at this question? How did you approach the whole thing? So our research had three parts. First, we started by looking at what was existing out there about non-textual or non-verbal communications around chronic pain. And we were looking at uh, three social media sites. So Flickr, the image sharing site, Tumblr, the blogging or microblogging site, and YouTube. And we were interested in what kinds of things were going on and how they were being shared, who was engaging with with them on those sites as, as representations, which, you know, there might be words, there might be text associated with it, but there was also often a photograph or a collage or a video or indeed with Tumblr, a lot of it is memes and they might be moving GIFs or they might be other kinds of, of images like chronic illness cat who appears with in various settings and, and gets shared and reshared. So that's part of the importance of, of that way of, of expressing on social media. So that was the social media side of your research, but you also organized some highly innovative events. And we followed that with a series of in-person and one online workshop using different aspects from the arts to explore chronic pain. So we did one on one that was called Imaging and Imagining Chronic Pain, where we had an artist and a specialist in neuroimaging, and they collaborated on understanding and ways of, of making images around pain. We had one that focused on visual images and body mapping with collaboration from a photographer who has worked quite a lot with creating images around pain and, and with pain patients. And and an Alexander Technique practitioner who worked with people kind of through the body and thinking about and through the body. We had another workshop that looked at sound, called it a soundscape of body and pain. And we worked with a sound artist and a music therapist together to explore the kinds of sounds that might be associated with pain and the experience of pain. And another one on spatial mapping, which had a geographer and a theater practitioner working together to think about the spaces that we associate with pain and how 
pain and space are kind of interrelated. And some of that involved some physical theater, as well as some work, again, with some images and, and uh, kind of making maps with images. Some fascinating approaches. And I know you're going to be talking about some of these creative workshops at the forthcoming Research Methods Festival. I wonder if you can just tell us a, a little bit more about what you, what you might be saying there, what, what people can expect to hear. Yeah, so I'll be talking about the workshops that we ran and how they kind of fit as a research method, as, in effect, part focus group in that we got people together who had a certain kind of experience and they did talk a bit about that experience, but they also did things together around those experiences. And part kind of ethnographic encounter with a bit of a, a, a staged field, if you like. So we didn't go out into a naturally occurring field, a place that was already there, but we brought people together to, to talk um, and to do activities together and, and part art project, in effect. And I'm going to talk about some of the challenges that were associated in working in that way. So, for instance, in turning control over to someone else, where the workshops were led by the artists themselves, and our role was really partly as participants and partly as administrators to make sure that everything got done and, and uh, people got uh, expenses reimbursed and things like that. It reminded me, after we'd finished the, the first one, a bit of when I used to study contemporary dance and uh, one of my teachers had this uh, thing about imprography where something was half improvised and half choreographed. And once it started, you really couldn't stop it, which was a little bit terrifying to kind of give control over and as a researcher in, in that way and, and to just trust that, you know, good data would be generated somehow. <laughs> so I'll talk a bit about that. Um, and I'll talk about what we've done in terms of documentation. We have video recordings. We have some field notes. The video recordings, we kind of, we don't want to fetishize them. They don't capture everything. So the importance of being there and the challenges of kind of documenting that space are important as well. And then also thinking about the outcomes. So how do we make use of arts methods as social sciences and are the outcomes good art and does it matter so let's get down into some of that nitty-gritty then what, what would you say are the key things that you've you've found uh, today in, in the project well I think in terms of our initial social, social media analysis we found that there was quite a lot of work in social science of medicine that talks about illness narratives and people you know using stories to make sense of their experiences of chronic pain and chronic illness and what we were interested in then was how these sort of non-narrative things things that were much shorter in most cases and not necessarily told to a particular person and frequently not told in a clinical context and stronger in some ways for that, communicated things and what kinds of things they communicated. We found a lot of use of humor and expressions of anger, particularly on Tumblr, for instance. That was a space that people were using to build communities of other people with pain who understood experiences. And, and uh, sharing those experiences. And what we found was different forms of social media really did that very differently. So Flickr was much more individualistic. It was much more about one person's images, usually photographs, whereas Tumblr was much more sort of focused on the social interaction and the, the liking and the reblogging, resharing through the circulations and memes, for instance. From the workshops, we really found that different methods made different things visible or audible, if you like, about pain. So, for instance, the sound workshop, we were really struck by the visceral quality of sound in terms of its ability to express pain, that people can actually feel pain when they hear painful sounds. You're probably familiar with this experience from sort of nails down a chalkboard or something like that. So it works literally and not just metaphorically, which was a bit of a problem because ethically, you know, we're not there to put people in pain. 
brain. We actually ended up handing out earplugs to people during the experimental and exploratory um, stages of that workshop and allowing people to sort of step in and out. But actually that was something that they seemed to find much more manageable, that they could kind of do something that maybe you know, brought up the pain for them, but also that they could then choose to, to opt out of that and to step away from that. We're not therapists and our goals were not therapeutic. And so we didn't set out with any particular goals about changing people's pain, but it was really striking how often the issue of transformation and transforming the pain came up. It was there through every workshop. So that was quite interesting for us. So what might be the implications then of your research for people who are suffering with chronic pain and also for those trying to treat people? suffering from chronic pain. One of the striking things was how much sort of richer the metaphors were when people did use words or use images or use um, objects that they had brought in to express their pain. So far beyond the kind of even what comes up in qualitative interviews, which is richer in turn than what comes up on many um, tick box and questionnaires, that pain wasn't just sort of burning or stinging or red, but much, much more detailed. So for instance, one of the clinician participants in the workshop brought in a stone to represent pain and said for her, pain was kind of heavy impenetrable. She couldn't get into it. She couldn't see in. You know, it was it was this sort of individualized thing. Certainly, we're hoping to expand the workshops um, and work with a wider range of, of people in pain. So there was a survey study in 2010 um, that used images and photographs of a similar kind to the ones that we were creating in workshops in clinical consultations and found that they did improve pain uh, communication for both clinicians and for patients um, and that both reported better understanding and better feelings of being listened to. So we're quite interested in what a wider range of materials around sound or drawings or this kind of thing um, might offer to people in that context. And also what what happens kind of outside of what's communicated in a clinical context. So we're quite interested in what people with pain say to their carers and what they say to um, each other. And we think that this is also a way that can give them tools to speak to those audiences as well. Communicating Chronic Pain is research funded by the NCRM. More information is available on the project website at www.communicatingchronicpain.org. Jen Tarr will be talking more about the research at the ESRC Research Methods Festival in July. You can find out more on that on the NCRM website at www.ncrm.ac.uk.